disciple of Christ who failed miserably. Time and again, he, he fell short. We studied him a little bit last week and how he failed even then. But what, what is amazing to me about Peter is his resilience. He seems to never give up. Even though he gets discouraged by his behavior, it doesn't stifle him. It doesn't put him in a, in a place where he just doesn't want to push forward anymore. He's constantly pushing forward, even though he knows he's going to stumble. And yet he's constantly growing, constantly changing, constantly being humbled. And yet as he's humbled, he becomes the person that God wants him to be. And through the leading of the Spirit, he writes this book to teach us at the end of his life how to be transformed by the power of God in the same way that he was. Peter could not have written this letter in 35 AD. He could not have written this letter when he was younger, when he was impulsive, when he was learning, when he was making mistakes, when he was opening his mouth too quickly, when he was reacting. He he couldn't have written this letter early on. He had to write it at a place after being filled by the Spirit and after yielding his life and his future to Christ without looking back. When he gets to that place and he gets some age on him and some spiritual maturity on him and he's able to look back at who he was and who God called him to be and who he became, that's when he writes this book. From a mature perspective, someone who had learned how to become. And what is encouraging to us and what is challenging to us is that if the Lord could use Peter and not just use him, but, but use him in mighty, powerful ways to literally start to transform the world. If God can use Peter, he can use anybody. So we're going to spend about the next nine or ten weeks here in First Peter. I would encourage you to be reading it throughout the week and studying it, preparing your heart. But let's start this morning with the first nine verses, and there is a whole lot here. So we'll try to study through it this morning and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining at the, as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now I want you to start in verse 1 and notice how Peter describes his audience. In many of Paul's letters, He writes to the church in Galatia or the church in Corinth or the church in Thessalonica. But here, Peter's audience is scattered and he describes them as aliens. Now, that's not science fiction. It refers to the believers 
who were spread out by the persecution of the Christians in the middle of the first century because after Christ left, the gospel goes out, Paul takes his journeys, and, and, and we hit the middle of the first century, there starts to increase persecution against Christianity. And the church starts to feel opposed and repressed. And more and more, this is how we are going to feel. That's not scare tactics. It's not alarmism. It's not negativity. It's reality. More and more, we are going to feel like that word in verse 1. As we stand for Christ in the first century, we are going to feel like aliens. We will be isolated. We will be singled out uh, from our culture. We'll be seen as weird and out of touch and irrelevant. And that's how they felt. Because as the church spread out, as people got scattered, like, like leaves when you throw them in the wind, they just spread out. There were pockets of people that were still serving the Lord, but they were disconnected socially. And they were probably, you would think, discouraged, right? And disheartened and, and kind of uh, wishing that they could gather as a body of Christ. So Peter reminds them, you are part of the body. We are, we are all together because of the work that Christ did. And now he writes to them to encourage them and to counsel them to persevere. And when you look at verse 2, we see how he describes believers, and this describes us too. And I'm telling you that the theology in verses 2 to 5 is so wonderful. We'll just try to touch on it this morning. But he said, we are chosen to be children of God based on God's foreknowledge. In other words, God, knowing what he knows, which is everything all at once, he knows every single thing that's happening in, in all of the heavens and all of the earth, that, that seeing that, he prepared the work of redemption and the work of transformation for us. And then he finished it, look at the back of the verse, with the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, is really the key to the Christian walk. Because as believers, we have been made holy. The word sanctified means consecrated and purified. In other words, set apart, purified, and established as something special. God sees us this morning because of his sanctifying word of the Holy Spirit as, as special and set apart. And that occurs in our heart and in our practical life. So he looks at the believer. He says, I knew before time that I was going to prepare the work of redemption and transformation. I sanctify it by my spirit. You are now set apart, purified, consecrated to me. And because of that, it not only happens in your heart, but now I want to see it in your practical life. In other words, as a result of your sanctification roads, you are called to be holy, and I expect you to live a holy life. Now, that's an important distinction because we're not just saved and purified and, and set apart to heaven, and that's it, and now we just kind of wait it out. God expects so much more than that. The Christian life, and, and this is basic Christianity here, the Christian life is about living as a holy person. And we're going to touch on that next week in the second section of chapter 1 and talk about what it means really to be holy. But just, just keep that thought for seven days. My life, your life as a believer, because it's been set apart, transformed, sanctified, consecrated, purified by the Holy Spirit, because of that, God's full expectation and his reasonable expectation, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that we will be holy. And the end goal 
The ultimate goal is in the last part of the verse, that we would obey Jesus Christ. To obey means to be in complete compliance. Not partial compliance, not compliance when I feel like it, not compliance when things are going well, but when things go rough, I don't really want to. We are to be in complete compliance to Jesus Christ. Now you say, all right, well, I need, I need a little reason because that's going to be hard. Well, look at verses 3 to 5 because these verses describe in very powerful detail the amazing gift that we have been given by the Lord. And if you ever want to share with someone how to be saved, you ever want to share the gospel, and you're like, well, Paul, I don't, I don't know all the verses, and I've learned a couple, and, but, but I don't know how to, how to bring it all together. If you ever want to share the gospel with somebody, take them to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, because the complete gospel's here. You can lead somebody to Jesus Christ just using these three verses, because all the key components of the gospel are right here. These great truths that people remind us of. And I want to highlight very quickly five of them. So if you're taking notes, just write one to five and let's, let's get what's here. Because this is how to share the gospel. First of all, our salvation through Jesus Christ, key component, our salvation through Jesus Christ is all a result of God's great mercy. God's mercy alone is the source of our redemption. And the one that salvation is through is Jesus Christ. That alone, that phrase alone is the whole gospel. Neither is there salvation in any other. You are not saved by works. You're not saved by deeds. You're not saved by intentions. You are only saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, God's mercy pours out on us and and redeems us from our sin. Second truth, God alone has caused us, here's the phrase in verse 3, has caused us to be born again because humanity is eternally infected with sin. And because of that eternal infection, we have a death sentence. We either die who we are or we need somebody to do something different in our lives. Nicodemus in John 3 asks Jesus, he says to him, how can it be that I can be born again. There's no way to go back into my mother's womb. So how can a grown man be saved? And Jesus says, it's not about being physically reborn. It's about being spiritually reborn. And that cannot be accomplished through works or effort or intention. It can only happen through Christ. So if we are going to be born again, look at the third truth. We can only be made new and alive by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't defeat death and hell and eternal punishment this week. I can't defeat death and hell and eternal punishment this week. So Jesus had to defeat them on our behalf. Now, if Jesus died and he's still on the cross and that's our picture of him, none of it matters. We might as well shut the lights off, go home and watch TV. Because if Jesus is still dead, sin and death hasn't been defeated. He's just like every other person that's ever died. He's dead. But because of the resurrection, now sin and death and hell have been defeated. So if we're going to be born again, it's not through our weak, feeble, finite efforts. It's through the eternal sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen at the end of the sentence. Because if he is not alive, we have no hope. But because he is alive, we're born again. Right? The resurrection is the key. 
So many times we focus on the cross. But if the tomb isn't empty, the cross doesn't matter. He is born. We are born again based on, look at it, verse 3, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's our hope. Then we see the fourth truth. Verse 4, our salvation, here's where it gets amazing, our salvation secures for us an eternal inheritance from the Lord. Being saved would be enough, right? Being redeemed, being rescued from sin and saved forever, that, that, that would be all that we could ever comprehend. But God says, no, I'm going way beyond that. I'm going to give you my inheritance. And Romans 8 says, you're going to be joint heirs with Christ. Imagine that. So we're given an eternal inheritance from the Lord. And then look at the last thought. He says, verse 5, we are protected in this eternal salvation by the power of God through our faith. We'll come back to that in a minute. All of this will be revealed. It will be completed. We'll see the full culmination of it in the last days. So let's recap it. Look at the five truths. The Lord not only shows us mercy to the extent of saving us completely from our sin, but he does this by creating a new life within us. It's accomplished only through his personal sacrifice. It undeniably assures us that we will be secured forever, and it makes us inheritors of what he has, and we're protected in this from now through eternity. That's what the Lord's done. And if you can't get excited about that, I don't know what to do for you. That is the great truth of the gospel. Now look how simple that was. We didn't go in depth there. We didn't look at Greek words. You don't have to know all that. We just looked at three verses that give the whole gospel. Now, it is indisputable. As you look at those truths you just wrote down, and as you look at verses 3 to 5, it is indisputable that all of this is done by him and by him alone. It was made possible by Jesus. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit. There is not one thing that we can look at in verses 3 to 5 that would suggest that we have earned it, deserved it, accomplished it, or had a part in it. But there is one little phrase in verse 5, and then it's kind of repeated in verse 7, that tells us while the Lord has made all of it happen, that we have a very significant responsibility to fulfill in maintaining it. The Spirit says through Peter that we are protected. Look at it. Let's find the verse here so we make sure everybody's on the same page. We're protected, verse 5, by the power of God. Tell me the next two words. Through faith. Come on, you can do better than that. I know you're awake. We are protected by the power of God, everybody, through faith. Then we look at verse 7, and it says that trials will lead to the proof of our faith. Now, we'll study the second one in just a minute. But it's at the heart, uh, because the, the second thought's at the heart of our study about becoming. But I want you to look back at verse 5 for a minute. Because while we're being told very clearly that everything has been done by the Lord, we are then told it's sustained by our faith. The Lord gave me a, a picture of this that I never thought about before, and it's such a basic picture, I don't know why it never come to my mind. But God in our lives has built a beautiful edifice for us. 
This is, this is our new life. He designed it, he paid for it, he built it, and he protects it. But we are responsible to maintain it. God looks at my life and he looks at your life if you're a believer and he says, I've built a brand new building. It's a new structure. I designed it. I paid for it. I built it and I protect it. But I want you to take care of it. And I don't want you to be lazy. I don't want you to be careless. I don't want you to be sloppy. I don't want you to let the light bulbs burn out. I don't want the walls to have holes in them. I don't want the plumbing to back up. I want you to keep it spotless and efficient and not one thing should be run down or in disrepair. Now, that's a very spiritual concept because it's a picture of our walk. The Lord took our lives. He took my life, which was decrepit and nasty and sin infested and uninhabitable, and he tore it down and he built a new creation and the new creation is spectacular. It's a perfect building, and he's the owner, and his presence is all throughout the building. And he doesn't want us to just live in it and squat in it. He wants us to maintain it so it will be just as perfect and beautiful and useful as when it was dedicated on the day of our salvation. And he even gives us each other to edify each other, to keep each other built up so the walls aren't falling down. But if we stop looking at him, and we stop trusting in him, and we stop being confident in him, and we allow things to slip, and, and wallpaper to kind of shred, and the building to kind of deteriorate, and, and everything's kind of just falling apart, what's he see? He sees that we don't really love him. We don't really have gratitude for him. We're just kind of, we're just kind of letting it go. And then when difficulty comes, look at verses 6 and 7, when difficulty comes and the hurricane force winds of trial and temptation and trouble hit, if the building is full of cracks and holes and it's sliding off its foundation and the spiritual furnace hasn't been maintained, there's going to be a very significant problem. That's why so many people lose heart when trials come. Because their faith struggles because they haven't maintained it they haven't taken care of the creation that god has has built up and the disrepair of their faith causes them to start to take on water and they feel like they're drowning and there's significant damage and, and they don't really know what to do next and, and and here's what we tend to do as 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 people we say well the lord should never have caused the storm well well, well the the lord should 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 have watched over me better he says i gave you a perfect building I maintained it, I built it, paid for it, set it up, gave you my presence, I'm there, constantly there, but, but you're not prepared because you're not taking care of it. Now that's Peter's point here in verse 7. That's at the heart of what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to teach us this morning. So look back at verse 7 for a minute. Actually look at verse 6. Because he says that the protection that we have through our faith should cause us to greatly rejoice even when we're distressed by trials. Why? Because those trials are our spiritual proving ground. The trials are where our faith is tested to prove whether we are really genuine, whether our trust and love for the Lord is real, or whether it's kind of weak 
and inauthentic and disingenuous. And I want you to see how seriously the Lord deems this testing of our faith to be. He says it is more precious than gold. Now, if you and I have ever had any doubt or any thought that trusting the Lord is not important outside of believing that he uh, saved us, then this is the evidence. God does not care at all about material things, certainly not as much as we do. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He does not care about material things. Here's what God cares about. Do you trust me or not? Why do you trust me? Do you trust me fully? And do you trust me without any hesitation? God doesn't care about our status. He doesn't care about who many friends we have. He doesn't care about where we work, what kind of car we drive, what kind of house we live in. He doesn't care about any of that. He cares about our faith. So how is that proven? Obviously, he knows our heart and mind, and he understands exactly where we stand with him at all times. But look at what the Spirit says in verses 7 to 8. He says there are three attestations. There There are three things that verify exactly how much we really trust the Lord. And these three evidences stand as our challenge this morning. Because if we're really becoming disciples of Christ, if we're really becoming emissaries of the gospel, we are going to have to advance and mature in these areas. Why do I say that? I say that because when you go back to the verse, it says that these are the proof of our faith. Verse 7. When we're tested, when we're tried, when we're evaluated by the Spirit, when other people look at our lives, they're going to look for these three things. They will either see them or they won't. They will either say, that person's living for the Lord because I see these things, or they will say, that person must be struggling in their faith if they're a believer because this is not coming out. And this is going to be a great challenge for us. This is not going to be easy. But God wants us to become like Christ. That's the highest possible standard. Can anybody think of a higher standard than being like Christ, who's perfect, who fulfilled the law, who was submissive to the Father, who was humble, who went to the cross with joy? There's no higher standard. So God doesn't just say to us, hey, Rhodes, I want you to do your best. He says, I want you to be like Jesus Christ in every way. So what's that going to mean? How do we know the proof of our faith? Let's take each one real quick. Verse 7, number 1. We're told the first way our faith is proven is by whether we praise, glorify, and honor the Lord even in the worst times of testing. The first proof, the first evidence, the first uh, verification of our faith is do you praise, glorify, and honor the Lord at all times? Now, the words chosen here by the Holy Spirit are very specific. And they indicate to us that this goes far beyond lip service. It goes far beyond some tacit uh, kind of kind of acknowledgement. Yes, I trust the Lord, but my heart's not really in it. And I'm kind of frustrated and I don't know what the Lord's doing right now. And I'm kind of irritated that he's allowing this trial in my life. Anybody ever talk like that really fast in their head? Where they're just kind of irritated and I didn't know what to think next. And I'm just kind of a little stressed out. God says, you're going to have to move way beyond that. You want to prove your faith? 
Here's what I expect. Listen to what each word means. Praise literally means approval, commendation, and admiration. The implication is not that the Lord needs our approval, but that we're so thankful for what he has done that we agree, yes, Lord, you deserve praise and trust. That's what it means to praise him. To glorify him means to come to the judgment in our hearts and minds that he is preeminent and he is worthy. Again, this is that we're convinced of this, not that there's any question. There's no question this morning that God is preeminent. But we have to come to the place of saying, yes, he is. And yes, he is worthy. And then to honor means to value and reverence, which means that we are full of humble, grateful awe that God actually has mercy on us. So God says, you want to prove your faith? First of all, do you praise me? Do you acknowledge that I am worthy of admiration and commendation and that I deserve your trust? Do you glorify me? Do do you know and trust that I'm preeminent and that I'm worthy? Because if I am, you're going to live differently. And, And do you honor me? Do you reverence me? Do you show your gratitude in the way you live? Now, remember, that's going to be easy when things are good. That's going to be easy when we're being blessed, as we like to say. We always talk about blessing as positive, right? We never talk about blessing as I'm in the middle of a trial and I am so blessed. I just... It's just awesome. Struggling, struggling, yes. Feel isolated and lonely and my health is not good, but oh, I'm so blessed. We don't talk about it that way, right? Oh, things are great. The Lord answered prayer. I'm so blessed. God says, the trying of your faith is when I want to hear, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. The Lord is so good. He's sustained me and he is worthy of my trust this morning. Oh, magnify his name with me. I am struggling to the nth degree, but praise the Lord. That's what he wants. The setting for the proving ground, look back at the verse, is the testing of fire. We know enough about refining to know that that's when the impurity is coming out and the Lord is refining us and purifying us. And that's rarely easy, but it always has a great spiritual benefit. So in those times, Do we commend his judgment? Oh, Lord, you know what's best. You're taking me through a rough trial right now. And I, oh, you are so worthy because I know this is best for me. That's the maturity of Christianity. And the extent to which we do or don't do that reveals the depth of our faith. Then second, notice in verse 8, we're told that the next way our faith is proven is by whether we love him in those times. The choir just sang hallelujah anyhow. And if you listen to the lyrics, we were saying that in tests and trials, we have victory through Christ. And even though the enemy is trying to discourage us and drag us down, we will stand our ground and we will praise the Lord. We're maturing in our faith and it is not the time to give an inch to the enemy. In fact, we're going to keep advancing and we're going to keep saying hallelujah. That's why I love that song so much. Oh, it doesn't matter what's going on. I'm going to say hallelujah. I'm struggling. Hallelujah. I'm in difficulty. Hallelujah. How many know that's what our life should look like as believers? That's 1 Peter 1. And that word hallelujah, oh, it's a great word. Such an important word for us to understand. 
Very simply, the word hallelujah means praise the Lord. But it has a greater depth to it. It also means the Lord who was, is, and will be. Praise the Lord who was, who is, and who will be. Who is our present help in time of trouble. And he's proven his present help by his past help. And we have confidence that there will be future help. And because of that, no matter what's going on, we're going to say praise the Lord. Ten of the Psalms start with this word. And the songwriters say, thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord, for your goodness and for your faithfulness and for your mercy and for providing. In Revelation 19, we studied it all winter. The multitude of believers four times in Revelation say hallelujah with a loud voice. And they say, praise you, God, for being God. Praise you for your power. Praise you for your judgments. Praise you even for your discipline on people because you reign over all things. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, it's with that perspective, the fact of God's greatness and the awesomeness of his presence that Peter says, and Peter knew trial, right? Peter says, we're going to say hallelujah no matter what. Peter, who was misunderstood, Peter, who made many mistakes, Peter, who cursed as he denied the Lord, Peter, who didn't initially believe when he ran to the empty tomb. Peter, who went right back to fishing and was challenged on the beach. Peter, who stood up at Pentecost. Peter, who was challenged by the authorities and told, don't ever say the name of Jesus again. Peter, who was uh, taken on by Paul, who said, you need to stop teaching some of the things you're teaching because they're not right. Peter, this man is able to say, you know what I've learned at the end of my life? I've learned to say praise the Lord no matter what happens. I've learned that God is worthy of my trust. But, but let me tell you, believers who are scattered, aliens in Racine this morning, let me tell you something. It goes beyond just praising Him. The true measure, look at it, the true measure of our appreciation, verse 8, is do I love Him as a result? Oh, we can say praise the Lord. Kind of mean it, kind of not mean it. Well, hallelujah, it's good. Yeah, I'm struggling, but hallelujah. We kind of toss it out kind of without much heart. Peter says, listen, this is not just about saying hallelujah. As God allows this trial in your life, do you love him more? Peter says, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Listen, love is not difficult when someone's doing things for you. Love is not difficult when someone's making your life happy, when you can see the tangible benefits of knowing that person. Where love is tested is when the situation is not easy. Where love is tested is when when we face personal challenges and the reward of the love is not immediately evident or immediately tangible. So the true measure of our love and sacrifice for the Lord, listen now, this is important, is trusting Him and genuinely praising Him in times of good and in times of crisis. And that applies even when we don't understand what he is doing or why. We always want to know, Lord, why are you allowing this? God says, I'm not telling you yet. I want to see how much you love me. I want to see how willing you are to trust me. Now that principle of trust and love, listen now, very important. That principle of trust and love 
in any situation also applies to our marriages. It applies to our relationship with our kids and a relationship with each other, especially within the body. With our spouse, do we continue to trust them and stand by them and even praise them when difficulty hits or the enemy is assaulting the relationship and introducing obstacles that we say, I don't want to sacrifice for that. Is our love shallow in those moments? Because we're thinking of ourselves more than the other person, which is how God defines marriage. You think of the other person more than you think of you. Is our love shallow in those moments? Or is it deep and resilient? Jesus said to Peter three times, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, sure. Yeah, of course. Let's eat some fish. No, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Come on. Come on. I'm a little uncomfortable now. Peter, do you love me? The third question was when it really hit. Oh, Peter, I know your tendencies. I know your impulsiveness. I know you're quick to say, yeah, 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 yeah. But Peter, let's get down to it. Is your love resilient? Because I'm telling you, from this point on, from this beach setting on, as we're sitting here eating fish, Peter, you're the guy. Not Nathaniel, not Bartholomew, not John, not James. It's going to be you. I'm going to establish my church on you. At Pentecost, you're going to stand up and preach Thousands are going to get saved. So, Peter, are you ready? Do you really love me or is this lip service? Because right now is the defining moment of your life. Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. See, our love is tested. And how we respond, is it resilient? Is it true? Is it deep? Or are we quick to say, well, I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to do something else. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not love. I didn't do that with you. I went to the cross for you. I expect you to love me the same way. If we're going to become godly men and women, mature, strong, effective, then when crisis hits we're going to not only have to say hallelujah, we're going to have to say, Lord, I love you more because of this. Look at the last thought. Because this one's harder than the first two. Isn't that good news? And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Look at the next phrase. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How is our faith proven? Our faith is proven that whatever happens, we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I think it's interesting here. As I kept studying this verse, I thought, you know, the Holy Spirit's really not holding back at this point. This is an astoundingly high standard that can only be reached as a result of unwavering, confident, relentless faith. Notice the first part of the phrase. 
he says, greatly rejoice with joy. It's, it's like a triple emphasis. And this shows us how much the Lord expects us to be full of joy, to be overflowing with grad, gladness that we live for the Lord to the point that I don't even have the problem. I can't even, do you know the Lord? She's got to shake her heads, right? Kind of bite her lips, shake her heads. Like, I, I can't even explain how good the Lord is. That's what he's talking about. Remember the context. The context is trials. Not blessing, trials. And we say, I am so full of joy. I, I, it's, it's inexpressible. There are no words to express how good the Lord is. And, and how much I love him. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm full of glory. The phrase means to constantly be praising him and celebrating his goodness. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not at that point this morning. I'm not sure any of us is at that point this morning. So this certainly is an area where we need to become a different person. And these three things all fit together as we trust in him implicitly, even in testing we become content in that trust and we become deeper in our love and that fills us with joy. What a goal that is for this week. What a goal that is for every week. That by having the perspective of what the Lord has done for us, we not only accept his help and protection, listen now, we're done, but that we love him that much more and we trust him with everything that we have. I want to become that kind of person, don't you? Don't, don't you want to get to the place where you say, Lord, in the midst of the fire, I'm going to be resilient in my faith. And Lord, and Lord, no matter what happens, I'm going to love you. I'm not going to waver in my confidence. Not one bit. No, no, no. And I'm going to prove that love by praising you and honoring you and glorifying you and being filled with joy. And I'm not going to look around me at my circumstances. I'm not going to listen to the lies of that devil. And I'm not going to listen to anybody telling me you should not trust in Jesus because he redeemed me. And he saved me with his own blood. And I can't even explain how great that is, but I'm telling you, I got an eternal inheritance and I am going to trust in him till the day I die or until he comes back. That's just the first nine verses. Peter, who knew, who knew failure, said, this church is what we need to become. Believer, this is what we need to become. And praise the Lord, he'll help us. Let's close our eyes. Lord, thank you this morning. Thank you this morning for your goodness. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for salvation, which we can't even begin to explain how wonderful it is to be saved. Lord, your goodness and your greatness in our lives is beyond comprehension. And Father, I pray this morning that you would work in our hearts. I pray right now that your spirit would teach us and convict us and encourage us Lord, this has been a challenging word you've brought to us this morning. But Father, we pray that our hearts would be so ready 
Lord, you've changed us. Who we were before is not who we are now. We'll never go back to that life. And Lord, in light of that, with a view toward heaven, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we now serve you. And I pray that our lives would be resilient and strong and full of praise and honor and glory and with joy inexpressible that's so great we can't even contain ourselves. Lord, produce that in our lives again and again, we pray. Restore to us, Lord, the joy of our salvation. That day when we surrendered and we felt the burden lifted off, Lord, restore that to us this morning. And may we walk in a holy way, Lord, resisting sin, putting off temptation, ready to serve you well. We honor you, Lord, and praise you this morning. And we thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.